these people had sold everything in order to be able to afford to go on this cruise and at the last minute the cruise ship canceled the cruise many of these people had already traveled to Portugal where the port was and had no home to go back to they went there expecting to go on a cruise I came to church expecting God to do something we're not going to cancel it today they're trying to cancel God but they're not going to succeed because we're going to keep our God lifted up high in praise and worship and adoration some of you ain't been around for very long when we came into church 49 years ago almost 50 years now it was, it was not uh, popular to lift your hands in church. It was quiet, pious, and uh, that's the way it was. Pentecostals were completely out of place. Not anymore. Pentecost is in right now. The fastest growing religious group in the world are oneness Pentecostals. Oneness Pentecostals. Amen. Because you get more than just a membership card when you so-called, quote-unquote, get saved. You get something much more than that. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Amen. The Lord is good, and I, uh, I want God to do something in your life today. Now, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and, and we've been around long enough to know. Thank you for that. I appreciate it long enough to know that when the holidays come, uh, people kind of back off spiritually a little bit. There's traveling, there's cooking, there's eating, there's family, and my gosh, you can only take so much, right? But here we are, and I believe God is here as well. And so we're going to ask our ushers to come so that we can receive an offering because we're not going to cancel giving. We live in the cancel culture. That's okay, huh? Hey, that's great. Thank you. There's a lot of sickness going around. There's some that are just not here today because they're sick. And they're, if they're even well enough to watch us online, uh, we greet you, welcome you. It's a part of this service. We're going to pray for the offering, but we're going to pray for you as well that God will touch you and he will restore your health, your energy, your strength. And God is able to do that. Why? Because he took stripes upon his back for the healing of the nations. Let's pray right now. Jesus, God, we've given you our adoration. Now we present our faith for these that are out traveling, these that are ill and sick. God, we pray right now in Jesus' name that you will begin to lift this congestion out of their chest, this infirmity out of their bodies. You will begin to restore their strength, their vitality. You will keep those that are traveling safe. May they come home whole, Lord, and bless their families. The offering we're about to give and receive, we ask the blessing of the Lord upon it. For it's just a tangible substance, but in the hands of God, it can do so much. We give you the thanks and praise for it. In Jesus' name, God bless you as you give.
praise one more time. We believe what we're singing, Jesus, and we give you honor today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I remind you of the uh, cards out front, the one another cards, to take some of them with you to pray for one another this week. Uh, check online for the announcements uh, to see what's going on. Entering into December, it's going to be a very busy month, but we don't want to be so busy that we lose sight of the things that are truly important. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, if it's all right with you, Brother Galan, I knew I'd get you. I'm, I'm going to preach part two of your Bible study. So you grew up with the name Cheeto, right? What you may not know is they turned that into a snack. <laughs> yeah, he's famous. Now you can go to the grocery store and there are bags of Cheetos. They, they even have a thing, I saw it, it's a grinder. You can grind it and sprinkle it on your food. I don't know why you'd want to do that because it's nothing but a bunch of chemicals. I should know I used to eat them by the bag. I talked about him one time, and, and I don't remember it was my birthday or something. Remember that? Everybody that was here, you threw little bags of Cheetos at me, like 100 bags of Cheetos. And none of them went to waste, by the way. I have to tell you the story. I read where the, this lady was in a snowstorm, and uh, she pulled off the side of the road. Her dad told her, whenever you're in a snowstorm, wait for a snow truck, plow truck, come by, get behind it, just follow it. So she waited, sure enough, here comes the plow. She got behind the plow and she followed the plow and 45 minutes later, the truck stopped and the driver gets out and comes back to her. She rolls down her window and, and he says, excuse me, ma'am, but I notice you're following me. What's going on? She says, well, my dad told me in a snowstorm, follow a tow truck. He says, okay. He said, I'm getting ready to leave the Walmart parking lot now. If you want to follow me over to the Target store. <laughs> anyway, we need a little humor today, trust me. I have to, I have to tell you, I have, I've turned everything off. I've turned it all off. I'm interested in, of course, in Israel and the hostage situation and the war and things, but I just can't listen to all this stuff anymore. I just can't do it. I suggest that you do the same thing. We turn our attention to the things of God. The prophet Joel was considered a minor prophet, but in the ranks and the realm of one God apostolics, he was a major prophet. He wrote of great blessings that would come upon the nation of Israel from God. And this time of prosperity that would come uh, would include the following. Joel chapter 2, verses 27 through 29. Ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. 
Of course, this is Messianic prophecy. It is a direct reference to the life, to the ministry of Jesus Christ and of what he would provide through his death, burial, and resurrection. But this prophecy should have been absolute proof to the scholars of Israel that Jesus was, in fact, their Messiah. But when Messiah would come to Israel, Joel prophesied an unprecedented outpouring of God's Spirit. Verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. In those days, in those days, ladies and gentlemen, we are living in those days. We are living in those days. God wants to pour out his spirit in this place today. God bless you. you may be seated. On the day of Pentecost, in the second chapter of Acts, Peter preaching to the multitudes that had gathered there uh, alluded to this prophecy when he said in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy. Peter concluded his message by affirming that the promise that came from the uh, lips of Joel that would be poured out upon the nation of Israel and beyond when he said in the second chapter of Acts, verse 38, which we could all quote in our sleep. I used to go to the dentist and he used to put me under that uh, nitrous oxide, which I totally loved and asked him if I could just come by and often just sit there for a while and put the mask on. But even, even when I was as high as I've ever been or whatever they call that under nitrous oxide, I could quote Acts 2.38. It is a fundamental foundational verse of Scripture that apostolics are willing to die for. Then Peter said unto them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall, ye shall, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But then he continued for the promise, the promise, this promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. A great outpouring of God's Spirit 
is taking place in this present world as we speak. Lives are being transformed by those who receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Knowing that the gift of the Holy Ghost is a promise from God, why should you desire it? Why should you want it? If there's anybody that is watching us online, why should you seek after or desire the gift of the Holy Ghost? First of all, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is the most incredible experience you will ever have in your entire life. There is nothing that we can even compare to the baptism of the Holy Ghost and what we have experienced through the indwelling of God's Spirit. Secondly, Jesus said that receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is absolutely essential to one's salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, in an apostolic environment like this, we need to make sure that we say this often because it's reiterated outside of the doors of our church that as soon as you believe in Jesus Christ, God's Spirit comes into you. There's no power. There's no evidence. You won't feel anything. You won't, we won't, uh, you won't experience anything. You just have to accept by faith that it's there. So we need to... We need to ring it from the housetop when you receive the Holy Ghost you will know that you have received something that is divine from Almighty God Jesus said this is absolutely essential if you want to be saved and go to heaven therefore John 3 5 and 6 Jesus answered verily verily I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Not talking about heaven, it's talking about the kingdom of God right here and now. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of water and, and, and of the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Apostolics, we know the difference between the flesh and the spirit. We know the difference between our carnality and what spirituality is within us. We know the difference. Marvel not, he said, that I said unto thee, ye must, ye must be born again. Romans chapter 8. Beginning in verse 9, but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, you want to know who the Holy Ghost is? It's the spirit of Christ. Uh-huh. Come on. There's a lot of confusion about this third strange member of the Godhead. There's only one God. Any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him 
that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. It is by the Holy Ghost that mortality will put on immortality. And every time that you experience God's spirit in you, you are practicing for that moment when there will be a transition, amen, from this life to the next. This is just rapture practice is all this is. This is rapture practice. God wants to give every one of you the Holy Ghost. Say, well, I received the Holy Ghost 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 40 years. I don't care how long it's been. If it's been 15 minutes or 15 years, God wants to give you the Holy Ghost again in this place. They gathered for prayer after the apostles who were released. They had been beaten and threatened to never speak again in the name of Jesus Christ. And the place was shaken. The Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. thing is God will not force it upon us. He will not hog tie us, hold us down, force our mouth open, our nostrils open and breathe his spirit into us. And one of the reasons I feel like God wants me to preach this is because there's people that come to our church and they, they come to the altar. I, I don't know if I'm talking about you or not, but we'll, I'll get to the saints in a minute. But they just come down, oh, Lord, yeah, they pray just so lightly. I mean, just, oh, God, well, I guess I didn't get it today. No, there is no, come on, there is no tomorrow when it comes to God. And my wife, I tell you, when I was seeking the Holy Ghost, every time I went to church, every time I I went to church. I went to the altar. I went and prayed. Amen. Because I got to get the Holy Ghost because if I don't have it and he comes back, she's going to go to heaven without me. We must be an open vessel right here and now. Saints of God, we have to be open. We have to be open. We must be in submission to the Holy Ghost. In the upper room, the Bible says in Acts 2 and 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I just want to tell you, when you receive the Holy Ghost, you will speak in tongues. Apostolic Pentecostal believers are accustomed to the moving of God's spirit into the divine chaos that ensues. I know when we first came into Pentecost, into this kind of an environment, it, it was, it was uh, we didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense to us. It seemed like nobody knew what they were doing. People were going in all different directions. But there's a divine chaos that exists in Worship and praise when the Spirit of God begins to move upon his people. I believe that every once in a while we need to be reminded of the full measure of what we have received uh, through God's Spirit, lest we uh, forget. 
So much is revealed in the short conversation that Jesus had with his disciples after his resurrection. It's in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he have heard of me, and I feel something moving in me right now. He said, go and don't move until something happens. What is, what is it? Well, you'll know what it is when it happens. See, I believe that we miss a lot of what God wants to do because we're not willing to wait for it. We're not willing to prevail in prayer until God decides to move upon us and within us. This stirs me because Jesus, the first thing he told them to do was wait. Wait. Well, I got my time frame, and if he doesn't move in my time frame uh, a prayer, then I guess it wasn't for me. How do you know that if you just if you just tarried a little bit, that God will not enter your prayer room and perform some dynamic uh, uh, a move of His Spirit within your life? First of all, saints, we do not know how to wait. I remember because of the times years and years ago, one of the preachers was praying and the Lord spoke to him and told him that you do not tarry long enough in my presence. And it's, it has it has stuck with me all of these years. You do not tarry long enough in my presence. Verse 5, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall, this is Jesus talking to them now, ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. One of the first things that you learn when you're baptized in Jesus' name and you're filled with the Holy Ghost is the difference between the Greek words exousia and dunamis. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own exousia or within his own authority. You don't have that kind of authority. He said, but you will receive Deutimus, our supernatural power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ladies and gentlemen, we're in a quandary in the last days. There's nobody that can really explain exactly what's going to happen next because that is within the Father's authority. But God has given us power in this hour. He's given us a Holy Ghost power and anointing that rests upon us. And even though we do not know how it's going to play out, God has given us an assurance that if we will rely and rest in that power, we will make it through. I'm going to tell you right now, if you combine the impenetrable armor of God 
and the weapons of our warfare that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. You combine those things with the supernatural dunamis power that we received when we were baptized with the Holy Ghost. You know what that makes us? It makes apostolic believers a force to reckon with. We are a force to reckon with. Have you noticed there are no devils here right now? Have you noticed there are no unclean spirits here right now? Have you noticed we don't feel the sensation of uncleanness because apostolics are forced to reckon with? You want to know why the man of sin has not appeared on the 6 o'clock news yet? Because apostolics are still here. And as long as we're here, he will not be able to make that introduction. You need to understand what God has given you, what God has given us. In addition to this, Jesus said in Mark 16, these signs shall follow them that believe. You're not going anywhere. There's nothing to follow you to. Think about it. These signs will follow them that believe in my name. They shall cast out devils. You know what I read? I just read that there are bottles that are appearing all over the world. They're called witches' bottles. And they put their incantations, their stuff in these bottles. And anybody that opens up that bottle, that curse is going to come out of that bottle into their life and into their family. I got news for you. We've got power over that. We've got authority over that. We've got the blood of Jesus. We plead against that. Come on, I know witchcraft is on the rise, but so is apostolic revival. They shall speak with new tongues. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on these sick and they shall recover. Come on, people. We need to start believing that. We need to start living this. We need to start believing what I just read. The Holy Ghost will change your life in ways you cannot even possibly imagine. So the Apostle Paul spoke of some of the greatest benefits of receiving the Holy Ghost in his second letter to Timothy. When he said in 2 Timothy 1 and 7, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Hallelujah. What did God give us when he gave us the Holy Ghost? He gave us power. He gave us love. And he gave us a sound mind. 
Come on, the world is literally losing their mind today. But not Holy Ghost filled people, not the children of God, not apostolic people. We're not losing our mind. We've got a sound mind. Our bodies might be uh, uh, dealing with some things, but our mind, we're sound in mind because the Holy Ghost is in us. We need to claim this. I know everything I'm saying to you heard a thousand times. I understand that. I also learned not to argue with the Holy Ghost. We know that after the 120 disciples in the upper room received the Holy Ghost, they went from the upper room into the streets. We do not know the details of that. We do not know what moved them from the upper room into the streets of Jerusalem other than it was God's spirit and power just uh, uh, ushering them into the Jerusalem streets to where the crowd was assembled for the Feast of Pentecost. But we know that they did move from the upper room into the streets. Something in the Holy Ghost that they received moved them. Operative words moved them from the comfort, the protection, from the familiar surroundings of this upper room, down in among the people, less comfortable and less safe. Something moved them from that room into the streets of the city. We know this because of Luke's account. And the first thing we see is that the people in the street were confounded by them. They couldn't explain them. Uh, because they said, every man hear them speak in our own language. There were 16 different languages, nationalities represented, and someone within that 120 was speaking in a language that someone there would know and recognize. Now, there's a thing out there that says they spoke in a language that was understood by all 16 different countries. That's not true. That's not true. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. The Bible says they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? But then we go to Acts 2 and 12, where they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, they're, looking, they're talking to one another. What in the world is going on? What meaneth this? Others were mocking. There's always mockers. Cutting up, making fun. And they said, these men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. It was nine o'clock in the morning. 
He said, these are not drunken as ye suppose. But I want you to notice something here. Peter did not say that the people were not drunk. Peter did not deny the fact that the way the 120 from the upper room were acting at least made them look like they were drunk. They appeared to be intoxicated. He didn't make an excuse for their behavior. He just said, they're not drunk like you think they are. They're drunk, but not the way you think that they are. They're under the influence of something, but not what you think they are. They're under the influence of the Holy Ghost. And it's causing them to act weird and strange. It's causing them to act like they're intoxicated. And they are. Under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. The 120 people from the upper room mesmerized and captured the attention of the people. And they did so by not caring what the people thought about them. They didn't care what the crowd thought. They didn't care what they said. They didn't care about their accusations. They were lost in the spirit of Almighty God. I know that I'm talking to some people right here and now that's hungry for apostolic demonstration. I know I'm preaching to some people that are hungry for apostolic revival. I know you're hungry to see people delivered from sin and filled with the Holy Ghost. You're hungry for an apostolic move of God. I'm here to tell you, somehow we have to get to the place where we don't care what anybody thinks. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk on wine, where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Not 20%, not 80%, not 90%, but be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, something is going to move you into a different dimension. So I ask you, when's the last time you got drunk on the Holy Ghost? When's the last time you lost a state of equilibrium and you staggered around because of the power of God was upon you so strong you were literally drunk on the new wine of heaven? How long's it been? How long's it been? Since you went out of yourself into a different realm and a different world. I can tell that some of you don't even know what I'm talking about because you've never experienced that. Say, Bishop, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'll tell you what I mean. See, God plucked us out of the world. God bless you all that was raised in an apostolic church. 
I was 24 years old before I ever walked into the door of a one God apostolic church. I can tell you I'm not proud of it, but it's part of my testimony. I've been drunk many times. I've been high many times. I've been so drunk I couldn't even stand up. My God. But I've also been drunk on the Spirit of God. And, and, and I can tell you there is one astonishing similarity between the two, being drunk on booze and drunk on the Spirit. There's one defining similarity. You want to know what it is? It's the loss of inhibition. It's the loss of inhibition. When you're drunk on alcohol, you don't care who you offend. You don't care how you look. You don't care how you act because you've lost all inhibition. But I'm telling you, when you get drunk on the Holy Ghost, you have the same thing exactly occurs. You don't care how you look. You don't care how you sound. You don't care what anybody thinks because you're in a different state of mind. We're not there yet, but we're on our way. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer by the minute. What we need, what you need, is to get fall down drunk in the Holy Ghost. A lot of Pentecostals have become social drinkers. See, I got to drive home. I can't get too messed up in the spirit. Don't you worry. God going to take care of you when you get behind the wheel of your car. I was on my way to the gym one morning this week. I was meditating on this message power of God hit me I'm telling you it's like a bolt of lightning my God I didn't lose control of the car I didn't run off the road I didn't run into anybody I just kept on driving down the road talking in a language I'd never spoken before feeling about a thousand million volts of Holy Ghost electricity go through my body don't you worry God will get you home so concerned about our dignity what are we going to look like when we get under the, under the power and inspiration of the spirit who cares you get intoxicated by the Holy Ghost you won't care either there are several admonitions within the Bible in the epistles, I should say, where believers are admonished, exhorted to be sober. <clears throat> More than one, by the way. But I think we need to understand this in its proper context. One such reference is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, 7, and 8. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us... <clears throat> 
For of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of love, of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I want you to notice this verse of scripture. I went through it pretty quick. Talking about being sober-minded, not being drunk on cares of life and all that stuff. But he says, then putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So you know that there's a great contrast, a great divide between being drunk and being sober. But in the context here, Paul defers to the Christian's armor when he talks about this. And he relates it to the state of mind and effectiveness of an individual, of a child of God, who is in the process of uh, being engaged in spiritual warfare. <clears throat> so when it comes to spiritual warfare, we need to be in the right frame of mind. When admonishing believers, the Ephesian believers, to put on the whole armor of God, here's what Paul said in Ephesians 6 and 16, and, and this, is, this, this, this really speaks to me above all. Now, there's the helmet, the breastplate, there's the girding of, of, of the loins, there's the shotting of the feet, and there's the sword of the spirit. But above all, he said, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench. Everybody say quench. <clears throat> quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked. Quench. Everybody say quench again. It is imperative that believers are able at all times to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. <clears throat> but in his letter, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he used this word quench again. This time, he used it in reference to the Holy Ghost. Now I'm getting ready to, we're getting ready to transition into a different area right now. And so he says very succinctly, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, quench not the spirit. So while it's essential that we're able through the shield of faith to quench all of the fiery darts of our adversary, it is equally important and vital that we do not shut ourselves off from the spirit of God. In other words, as we are quenching the fiery darts of the wicked, we must never extinguish the fire of the Holy Ghost. <clears throat> I feel like I need to say this, so I guess I might as well. Unfortunately, there are those who are able to conduct themselves in spiritual warfare. They're able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked, but when it comes to the fire of the Holy Ghost, they know little about that. <clears throat> the church in Branson that we attend while we're there, Pastor Hopper 
does the fifth Sunday thing. And on a fifth Sunday, what he does is he has the elders, he has three other elders. Uh, two of them are retired pastors in the church, so he has them come <clears throat> and give an eight-minute sermonette. And that is the message for today. Well, he did it last year, and uh, I was among them. I had my eight minutes. It turned into 15, by the way, because he had me go last, and Brother Hopper knows me. And so I adopted the title of The Closer. So this year, I was assigned again the last position to speak. <clears throat> I knew instantly what God wanted me to speak about. And uh, it didn't appear to me that what he had given me to talk about, to speak about, would enable me to fulfill my closing responsibilities. That's a Sunday service. This is it. We got to get something here, right? So the message that the Lord gave to me uh, was about the oneness of God. And uh, it seemed more like a short Bible study. In eight minutes, not very, very long, right? And so it didn't seem like to me like this is really going to do it to close out a Sunday service. <clears throat> Man, was I wrong. Whew. Was I, you just listen to God. He knows what he's doing. And I was walking across the platform on my way to the pulpit. The Lord began to instantaneously reveal things to me about the ancient method of how uh, he revealed himself to his people who lived in a polytheistic culture and world. And you take Moses, for, remember this, I am six steps from the pulpit, and this went in my mind just instantaneously. Moses, for the first 40 years of his life, lived and was trained and raised in a idolatrous culture. They had many gods in Egypt. He was immersed in that culture for the first 40 years of his life. On the backside of the desert, at the age of 80 years old, don't tell me you're too old to receive a revelation or have an experience with God. 80 years of age, uh, he was introduced for the first time to the one true God. God's method of revelation, hear me now, his method of revelation was a burning bush. <clears throat> yes, there was a voice that came out of the bush, but I want you to understand that the revelation uh, was with fire. It was fire and God that revealed himself to Moses. 430 years of time, Israel had been plunged into the same ethos, but God revealed himself to them in a very similar, however much grander fashion. <clears throat> the entire mountain of Sinai, 
uh, was consumed by fire, and God spoke to them out of that fiery mountain and revealed himself to this idolatrous culture that there is one God, and he revealed himself by fire, by fire. God then saw fit to place fire inside of the, the uh, tabernacle and temple worship. Thus, there would be fire in the candelabrum, and light would come forth in the holy place from the candelabrum, and there would be fire in the altar. Neither the light nor the fire was to ever, 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 ever go out. So during Israel's history, when the light went out and when the fire in the altar went out, when these fires were extinguished, the people descended into idolatry and into moral debauchery. During one of these times when Israel was lost in pagan worship, Baalism had consumed the nation. They had their own set of priests and prophets and so on. They were so confused. But Elijah said, let's, uh, let's all meet on Mount Carmel, and uh, we're going we're gonna to do something there, and let's just see who shows up. So he said, let the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And once again, we see that God revealed himself to Israel, and he did so by the means of fire. Therefore, if God saw fit to place perpetual fire among the people of God in the Old Testament, don't you think he would see fit to also place it somewhere uh, in within the blood-bought church. If it was so important back then, don't you think it's as important today that there would be fire somewhere in the church of the living God, a fire that, that was likewise to be perpetual and should never go out? And of course, yes, the answer is an emphatic yes. But if God is revealed by fire, where is the fire today? If God's going to break through to somebody in this service and reveal himself to them by fire, where is that fire today? I submit to you the words of one of the greatest prophets that has ever lived or breathed. Matthew 3.11, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So I just don't feel like running the aisles because you don't have enough fire yet. I don't feel like shouting. You haven't got enough fire to shout. I don't feel like leaping for joy. That's because you're not on fire yet. I'm telling you right now, I've touched hot stuff before. I don't go, oh, my goodness, that is so hot. I think I will move my hand. No. Oh, my goodness. Hey. 
I don't do a lot of cooking at home, but I, I'm the one that cooks the bacon and eggs. I can tell you, when that grease starts popping out of that skillet, I'm doing a little jig getting away from that grease. When it gets hot enough, you'll move. When it gets hot enough, you'll dance. When it gets hot enough, you'll run the aisles. When it gets hot enough, you'll do something in praise. You're just not hot enough yet. You don't have enough fire yet. You're not on fire yet. Say, well, that's just not my personality. That's just not my style. You better go talk to the psalmist, the prophets that wrote those words. I believe that apostolic revival... requires the presence of perpetual fire. A manifestation of fire. You think it could get hot enough that it would set off our fire alarm? It could. Wherever apostolic revival is occurring in America and around the world on an ongoing basis, you will find holy fire. You'll find God's people are on fire. There's a fire burning in their prayer rooms. There's a fire burning in their worship. There's a fire burning in their soul. I don't care where you go. When they're having apostolic revival, you will find the manifestation of fire. You may not think so, but America is one of the most idolatrous nations in the world. In America, many, 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 many gods are worshipped. Yet I'm here today to challenge you in the midst of an idolatrous, polytheistic culture to let the God that answers by fire, let him be God. So just like the prophets of Baal, man, I got to hurry up. They could not compete with the God of Israel. And the gods of this world cannot compete with the fire of God. Now, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not sorry, but I am, I guess. But there's some people you just cannot win with a Bible study. They've got to experience the fire. And so what we need, ladies and gentlemen, is a baptism of fire of fire because that is what will reveal <clears throat> the identity and the power of the one true God let me move quickly to a close Mark 16 17 these signs shall follow them that believe yes we read it a moment ago in my name they shall cast out devils they shall speak with new tongues now we believe in speaking in tongues. 
it's permissible here, it's acceptable here, it's practiced here. In fact, uh, speaking in tongues is the evidence uh, that you have received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. Corinthian church spoke in tongues. So there's no question, there is no debate that we are a conduit for other tongues. But where is the fire? He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So I'm going to tell you right now, we've got the tongues down pat. We got the tongues down, ladies and gentlemen, but, but where is the fire? We are professional tongue talkers, but where is the fire? Now, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm not going to intentionally try to offend anybody, but I may offend you by accident. Could it be that what we refer to as a move of God is not a move of God at all, but is actually fire that's being manifest from an intercessor or from a worshiper? Oh, God's moving. No, that's just God's fire that's being manifest in that child of God, in that individual. And this fire that is uh, being manifest reveals the presence and the power of Almighty God right there in that particular part of the sanctuary. And it's revealed to everyone else who is now saying, oh, God is moving. No, God is manifesting his fire. So could this be because consecrated worship releases the fire of God and when you combine that with the preached word of God, God reveals himself to the unsaved, to the unredeemed. So what we try so hard, oh, do I feel the Holy Ghost? What we try so very hard to hold back and to conceal is the very thing that God is ordained to reveal himself. What we try so hard to keep from manifesting so we don't act up or act out or act undignified so that we can try to conceal, contain, or quench this thing is the very thing that God needs to manifest <coughs> in order for people to be saved. My God. So the Apostle Paul, I'm almost finished, taught the tongues for personal edification. <clears throat> um, so if tongues are for personal edification, 
the fire must serve a different purpose. I don't have time to go into this teaching in 14th chapter of Corinthians. would like to, but um, we're short on time. I believe we need a baptism of fire. A baptism of fire. You want to know what will move the church? Fire. You know what will move us out of our state of apathy? Fire. What do people do when there's fire in a the building? They get out of the building into the street. There was fire in the upper room. We got to get out of here. Jeremiah 20, for since I spoke, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil because the, the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak anymore in his name. I'm done. I'm not going to preach again. I'm not going to warn the people again. I'm never going to say another word in his name. But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire set up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing. Look what he said. I could not stay. I couldn't keep my mouth shut if I wanted to. I could not remain silent even if I wanted to. You know, when he got that revelation, he's standing in a dung pit up to his neck. He says, I feel like fire shut up in my bones. You know what brought him out of that? It was the fire of God. Come on, we come saying, preacher, preach something that'll move me. It's not the preaching that'll move you. It's the fire of the Holy Ghost. Closing worship team, please join me. We used to sing the song years ago, You Gotta Move. Move, you gotta move, you gotta move, you gotta move. When the Lord gets ready, you gotta move, you gotta move. Well, when it gets hot enough, you will. When your fire is burning bright enough, you'll move. Hallelujah. Say, I just, I'm just not a mover. Then you're, you're not on fire. It's going to say it like it is. Revelation 3, 14 and 15. Under the angel of the church, I'll lay it to see right. These things saith the amen. Faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou art cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. He didn't say, I'm just going to leave. I'm gonna, he said, I feel like vomiting right now. That's what the Spirit of God, that's what Jesus is saying to Laodicea. Your spiritual apathy makes me sick to my stomach. Now that's I'm telling you, this is, this is exactly what the Word of God is saying to the people in the Laodicean church. But what was it that brought such condemnation from God upon the members of, of this church? Why did the Lord say 
that, that he was sick to his stomach and that he would spew the Laodiceans out of his mouth. It wasn't because they had succumbed to or embraced or invited into their church false prophets or false doctrine. It wasn't because they had fallen into moral decay or moral depravity. No, it's very simple. The Lord's review came because they had no fire in their soul. They had no fire in their soul. Their services were good. They were comfortable. They enjoyed themselves when they went to the house of God, but there was no fire in their midst. So in his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul said, I'm glad that I speak in tongues more than ye all. But ladies and gentlemen, speaking in tongues was not an issue in the Laodicean church. They didn't have a problem talking in other tongues. There simply was no fire 